Welcome to Northgate Christian Fellowship's weekly message series. And now, here is Senior Pastor Ken Jensen. I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a lot of confusion about what Easter is all about. Um, in fact, I just this couple of weeks ago, I read uh, um, a survey that had been done. And while um, about two-thirds, 67% of American population knows it's some kind of a religious holiday, less than half could identify what it really was about. Um, 13%, in fact, actually said they didn't know how to describe it. They had no idea whatsoever. Uh, 3% thought it was a celebration of the birth of Christ. 1% said the second coming of Christ. I missed something. I don't know. Um, And there's a lot of other ideas about what Easter is all about. And I kind of brought some things um, to kind of help us understand what Easter is not. Um, Some common misperceptions. A lot of people think it's just, it's a celebration of spring and rebirth and flowers and all of that kind of stuff. And so um, that's really what Easter is all about. It's just renewal and and new beginnings and and the winter's over and, and life is beginning once again, the cycle of life kind of a thing. That's not what Easter is about. For a lot of people, uh, it's about a chance to get together with friends and family. A little champagne brunch, maybe. No, it's not champagne. I know when I was a kid, uh, it was all about the eggs. Easter eggs, hunting Easter eggs, rolling Easter eggs. We never did the rolling thing. I don't know if you did, but I'm not sure what Easter egg roll was all about. It was all about hunting them for us uh, because inside was all the goodies stuff. Now, uh, along with that, another big part of it for me was the chocolate bunnies. (laughs) Yeah. This one's a little small, but that's... And of course, of course, peeps, the icon of American Easter right here, Okay. And you don't eat these on Easter, by the way. You put them aside and you wait till they get really hard and stale. And that's when they're really, really good. None of those things really have anything to do with Easter. Easter is not a celebration of spring. It's not even a celebration of God. In fact, it's not even a celebration of Jesus. It's a celebration of a very specific event. The resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because it's the resurrection that makes everything different. It changes everything. We have for the last month been looking at some of the miracles of Jesus. And, um, and I want you to know this morning, Easter is not a celebration of his miracles. It's not a celebration of his teachings. It's not a celebration of all of his good works. In fact, we wouldn't know any of those things were it not for the resurrection. The resurrection changes everything because the resurrection, in fact, the resurrection has changed how we view human history. We measure human history all around Jesus Christ. B.C., A.D., it all hinges right around there. And it's because of the resurrection. And you've got to think about this because this isn't like some great Roman Caesar that changed the world like this. It wasn't a great Roman general or a statesman. It was a Jewish carpenter from a small town in an obscure village far, far away removed from the capital of Rome. Yet that Jewish carpenter turned rabbi, changed the world. That's pretty incredible stuff. 
And it all comes down to the resurrection. And because of the resurrection, thousands and thousands, millions of lives have been changed. And thousands and thousands, millions, have lost their lives because of hanging on to the truth of the resurrection. And it has been the centerpiece of Christianity since the beginning. You read all through the New Testament, any time they talk about what this is all about, it all comes down to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Peter, the very first sermon ever recorded in the New Testament, Peter, it was like weeks later, just weeks after the event, and an incredible thing happened, and people just gathered by the thousands to listen, and he stood up on his soapbox or his bale of hay or rock wall or whatever it was he stood up on, and he gave this sermon. He said this, verse 22, people of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him among you, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, and then he quotes Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. And then he comes back and says, Brothers and sisters, we all know that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet. And he knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. Then verse 36, he wraps it all up. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to their heart. They said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent, be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you, and your children, and all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. From the get-go, it has all been about the resurrection. The resurrection changes everything. Now I want to talk about a few of those when it comes right down to your life and mine. One of the things about Jesus' resurrection is that because of his resurrection, we can now experience forgiveness from our guilt. You don't have to look very far around in this world to see something is fundamentally wrong. Things are not the way they are supposed to be. But see, God has had from the beginning a plan. In fact, that's what Peter says in here. God did, God these, things, did these things among you. Jesus was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. It says there was a problem 
this fundamental problem with the Bible calls sin. Now, that is not a very popular word. That's not a very popular concept these days. But it's really at the root of what the problem is. It's not popular. It's a little offensive. Some people think that, well, that's kind of overly simplified. Kind of silly, don't you think? But the Bible insists that's what's wrong. Because, see, what we have done is we have reduced sin to a grocery list of thou shalt nots. Do this, don't do that. We think it's all about the behavior. But it is far more insidious than that. And far more dangerous. It goes to the very core of our being. And it infects our attitudes. It infects our actions. It infects our relationships with one another. It's destructive. The thing about it is, we have this incredible gift of self-deception. We are good at deceiving ourselves. I mean, think about this. When you go to a party, and someone at the party has way too much to drink, who is the one person at that party that does not understand they've had too much to drink? You go to a karaoke bar. Who is the one person who does not know how bad they sound? <laughs> Had someone come to me after the first service and said, I thought of another one for you. You could say, I go home every Sunday thinking I have preached a wonderful and great tremendous sermon. <laughs> I wasn't sure how to take that. <laughs> See, it infects everything. And we're really good at self-deception. But God had a plan. Now, it's God's plan, but that doesn't let us off the hook. We are not excused from our part in it. In fact, this is what Peter said to the people right there. He said, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. Now you say, well, that wasn't me. I wasn't there. I had nothing to do with that. Oh, yes, you did. Paul talks about it when he wrote to the Roman church. He was handed over to die because of our sins and was raised to life to make us right with God. We are all guilty. Every one of us in this room manages to make our own contribution. We all do. Because none of us is perfect. And that's the standard. See, it's not a matter of quantity or quality of sin. It's the mere fact of sin. And we are all guilty because the standard is perfection. Just, by the way, by a show of hands this morning, how many here would say, I have had a little difficulty being perfect the last seven days? All right? Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, you just qualified. (laughs) We're all guilty. Now, we think, because of this self-deception thing, we think, well, yeah, but I'm not that bad. I mean, I'm not Charles Manson. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not that bad. I, you know, yeah, I got a few little imperfections, but, but I'm not that bad. Because, you see, we want to think that the, the standard isn't perfection because we know nothing's perfect. Nobody's perfect. I went online this week. I was just curious to find out. Um, because the FDA, the Food and Drug Administration, has a certain allowance um, for particulates in our food. I didn't know, know if you know that, that they can sell this as whole, healthy, pure food, okay? But if you buy canned tomatoes, they are allowed five fly eggs and one maggot per 500 grams. Frozen broccoli is allowed to have 60 mites per 100 grams. Brussels sprouts, which is why I don't eat them, have an average of 30 or more aphids per 100 grams. 
macaroni. You like pasta? You know, pasta, 4.5 rodent hairs per 225 grams. Peanut butter is allowed 30 insect fragments and one rodent hair per 100 grams. You will never eat peanut butter like you did before. Because <laughs> we know nothing's perfect. It can't be perfect. They can't get everything out. So there's a certain allowance that won't harm us. and It's okay to eat. But God doesn't grade that way. God's standard is perfection. And perfection, when it is broken, makes us guilty. And guilt demands justice. It always does. Because some people say to me, well, you know, what's this whole crossing? I mean, why did Jesus have to die? If God is so loving, why couldn't he just say, I forgive you all? Yeah, I mean, why, 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 why the cross? Why the resurrection? Why this whole thing of Jesus? Why couldn't God just say, you're forgiven and be done with it? Because anytime there is a wrong, there's damage done. Anytime when there's a wrong, there's pain, there's hurt associated with it. And think about it in your own life. In a relationship, if someone who is in your circle of friends hurts you, wrongs you, there is pain involved in that. And the pain doesn't go away. See, when it happens, you've got one of two choices. One, you can retaliate and even the score, you know, and he hurt you, you hurt him back, and then, you know, we're even, except we always hurt just a little bit more, and it continues to escalate. See, we can demand punishment. We can say justice is satisfied by punishment. Or we have another choice. We can choose to forgive. But forgiveness has its pain too. See, in forgiveness, I absorb the pain myself. Someone hurts me. If I want the relationship to be restored by forgiveness, I bear the pain of it. That makes sense? Forgiveness has a cost to it. We have wronged God and done damage to our relationship with Him. And for that to be restored, something has to be done with the pain to make it justice. And the way God chose to forgive was by giving His one and only Son to die on a cross. Trouble is, that image has lost its impact on us. To us, a cross is a nice piece of jewelry. You can get them in gold and silver, highly polished or, or matte finish. You can have diamonds encrusted in them. You can do all kinds of things. I know people who have no idea what it's about wearing crosses. It has lost its impact. We don't realize the level of damage that has been done and what it took to make it right. So under your chairs, in fact, everyone, you can pull this out. We thought maybe this would help. Every one of you should have a little card with a, with a nail on it, kind of a miniature version of a spike. This is yours to take home. Because if the cross has lost its impact on you, I want you to look at the nail. Because that was the pain inflicted. You can take this home. You can make a necklace out of it if you'd like. You can carry it in your pocket. But I want you to understand, forgiveness has its price. 
And Jesus absorbed it all. And because he did, and because he was resurrected, we know that what he did was all that needs to be done so we can be forgiven of whatever we have done. The resurrection validates the sacrifice. But it does more than that. See, because of the resurrection, we also can trust everything that Jesus said. The resurrection validates everything he said. In fact, without the resurrection, he is just another martyr in a long line of martyrs. Teachers, rabbis, put to death for their teaching. He's just one more in that long list. But Peter insisted on the resurrection. He said, God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Now, understand, this is the very same guy who just a few weeks earlier was scared to death when a peasant girl accused him of being one of Jesus' followers. This is the guy who sat by the fire when Jesus was going through his trial and there was a young peasant servant girl pointed him out and said, you're one of his followers. And he was scared to death to admit it. This same Peter, this same guy, afraid of a little girl, is now standing up in front of thousands of people, the very people who were involved in that whole mess and tragedy, and he stands up and he says, you did it. Something happened to this guy. Something changed him. You may not believe in the resurrection, but you've got to admit he is a very, very different person than what we have pictured earlier. And it was just a matter of weeks in time. In fact, he stood up and said, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to that fact. The one who said, no, not me, is now saying, yeah, I'm one of them. I'm one of those witnesses. I saw it. And, and the thing about it, because some people say, well, maybe it, was, you know, maybe it was just a hoax, a fabrication. Maybe it's just folklore that kind of developed um, about this Jesus years and years later. Except that if you were going to make up this story, you would make a very, very different story. You would. Because, see, in this story, as it's told, there's no heroes. There's no brave souls. I mean, if you were going to write this story, if you were going to make it up, you would have done something along like he was buried in the tomb and all of the faithful gathered around. And for three days, they held a candlelight vigil. And they prayed and prayed because they knew God could raise him from the dead. And they stood there and they prayed. And on that third day, as they gathered together and they were praying and they were just counting down the, minute, the seconds to, to the, the sunrise. And they were counting down 10, 9, 8. And the ground started to shake. Seven, six, five, and the Roman soldiers fled in fear. Four, three, two, and the seal was broken. One, and he burst from the grave, and we were all witnesses to it. It's not how it happened. By their own admission, they were fearful, they were confused, they were doubting. By their own admission. Now, if you're going to make up a story you would probably write it a little bit differently. This isn't just folklore. And the thing is, you cannot separate his teaching from the resurrection. It's all part of the same story. Because I also have people who sometimes say to me, I like Jesus. I love what he did. I respect his teaching. I even admire his courage. 
But this resurrection stuff, I don't know if I can buy that. Yeah, I'll follow his teaching, but the deal is you can't separate them. They are part and parcel of the very same thing. And and, and think about this. They didn't need a resurrection story if all they were going to do was continue his teachings. See, all they would have to do is say that we were followers of the rabbi Jesus and now we are perpetuating his teachings. This is what we believe and this is what we think you ought to believe. And this is how you should interpret scripture. If they just wanted to perpetuate his teachings, they didn't need a resurrection story. But it wasn't about his teachings. It was about life. And that's why the resurrection changes everything. Peter goes on. He says, you know King David, the patriarch David, first great king of Israel. You all know him. Well, he he prophesied about all this happening. And he said, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried and his tomb is here to this day. What he is saying is, you can check out David's tomb. It's still there. And it's still occupied. But you can also go across town and find another tomb, and it's empty. See, if it's a hoax, you got to explain the empty tomb. Because right then and there, this was just within weeks. Again, anybody could go and say, what are you talking about? It's still full. The stone's still there. The seal is still on it. The guards are still standing there. All I had to do... See, if, if there's no empty tomb and just a lot of eyewitnesses, it can be disproved. Because you just go over and you point. Now, if there's an empty tomb but no eyewitnesses, then there's all kinds of explanations for how it happened. But when you bring the two together, you cannot deny this. That Jesus appeared. The tomb was empty. In fact, Paul wrote about it later. He said, he appeared to Peter and then to the 12. And after that, to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time. Then he appeared to James. Then to all the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me. He said, it wasn't just one or two people. In one point, there were 500 in one occasion. Now, you can't say, well, that was kind of a you know, mass hallucination. Because hallucinations don't happen that way. Something happened. And because it did, because of the resurrection, everything else that he said is true. Tim Keller puts it this way. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any? Of what he said. The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Because if he was resurrected, if he rose from the dead, then everything he said about himself is true. If he rose from the dead, then everything he said about God is true. If he rose from the dead, then everything he said about me having forgiveness for my sin and a relationship with God now open to me is true. It all hangs on the resurrection. And the resurrection is what changes everything. And when it comes down to you and me in our everyday life, the resurrection means that we can become all that God intended us to be. Because that was the point. 
Peter wrote about it later. Same Peter wrote this letter. He wrote these words. Because Jesus was raised from the dead, we have been given a brand new life and have everything to live for, including a future in heaven. And the future starts now. One of the biggest mistakes we make is to think that it is just about forgiveness. Now, forgiveness is important. Forgiveness is a key part of the story. But it is not just about avoiding hell and getting an entry ticket into heaven. It's about much more than that. The fact that there is a resurrection says it's about life. And if it's about life, then it's about living (laughs) that life. If it's just about forgiveness, I got my ticket, now I can just go and do whatever I want, you've missed the point. The resurrection says, no, it's more than that. It's about life, new life. It is an event, but it was an event that was the beginning of something new. Life New life implies living newly. And one of the misperceptions we have about that is we think, if I do that, if I put my trust in Jesus, then I'm going to have to become one of those obnoxious religious people. I'm going to have to carry a Bible around everywhere I go. I'm going to have to get up at four in the morning. You know, I'm going to you know, I'm have to go to church every Sunday. I miss my golf and everything, you know. If I become a follower of Jesus Christ, then I've got to throw all the fun stuff out of my life and just be miserable because if I'm miserable, it must be spiritual. <laughs> and nothing could be further from the truth. He came to give us life. He was resurrected to give us life. Why would God go through all of that on our behalf just to mess with us? His plan is not to mess up your life. His plan is for you to become the person he fully designed and intended you to become. God created you. He knows you. He wants the very, very best for you. He wants you to become the very best version of you that you possibly can. God does not stamp out Christian clones, cookie cutters. This relationship with God is as unique as you are. It's the life you were intended to live. And In a couple of weeks, two weeks from today, we as a church are going to go together on a focused journey looking at what that looks like for us as a church family, but even in my own life, what does it look like to me? And and we're going to use as the basis of it a new book written by John Orper called The Me I Want to Be, Becoming God's Best Version of You. I just want to read to you just one little part of it. Only God can see the best version of you. And he is more concerned with you reaching your full potential than you are. God made you to flourish, to receive life from outside yourself, creating vitality within yourself and producing blessing beyond yourself. Flourishing is God's gift and plan. And when you flourish, you are in harmony with God, other people, creation, and yourself. As God helps you grow, You will change, but you will always be you. You will always be you, a growing healthy you or a languishing you. But God did not create you to be anybody else. Your uniqueness is God-designed. Some people think that if they seek to grow spiritually, they will have to become someone else. But God won't discard your raw material. He just redirects it. 
God doesn't make anything and then decide to throw it away. He creates. And then if there's a problem, he rescues. Here is the good news. When you flourish, you become more you. You become more that person God had in mind when he thought you up. You don't just become holier. You become you -er. <laughs> God wants to redeem you, not exchange you. And that's the truth. The good news is you can become all that God intended you to be because of the resurrection. That's it. Peter put it this way to the crowd. God has made this Jesus whom you crucified both Lord and Christ. Christ is Savior. God's anointed one, Messiah, who came to rescue to rescue the whole world, to rescue us from that sin problem, from that lack of perfection problem. He came to rescue us. He made him Messiah, Christ, but he also made him Lord, Master, the big honcho, CEO, the leader and guide for my life. See, the resurrection does both. It's not just forgiveness. It's about life. A couple of years ago, uh, our daughter uh, got married. And um, one of the things that she wanted to have at her wedding was the father-daughter dance. Now, I don't dance, okay? I have never danced in my life. So the whole idea was, okay, we'll take dance lessons together and we'll practice this dance. So she and her husband-to-be and my wife and I, we took dance lessons together about six weeks, okay? And we learned all these different steps and I can remember a few of them. Um, but when we were going through this whole thing, see... My wife is a dancer. She loves to dance. She dances for recreation. I don't understand it, but she does. Now, here's the thing when you dance as a couple. Only one person can lead. Now, I was taught <laughs> in the class, it's my job to lead. But she's the one who knows how to dance. You can see trouble brewing. <laughs> She kept wanting to lead. And I would stop and I would say, I'm the leader here. <laughs> and the teacher would come and say, you've got to let him lead. It's his job. Now, God is much better at a leader, okay? He knows what it looks like. All he does is invite us to the dance. It's that simple. To follow his lead. To learn how he directs. To turn over control of my life and quit trying to lead. It is to decide. In fact, this is what, what Peter said when he, he was asked, so what do we do? What do we do? He said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of of the Holy Spirit. You will have the forgiveness of sin and God's Spirit will be within you, transforming you from the inside out. Forgiveness and life. Learning to dance and following His lead. Repentance. Repentance. That sounds like a really tough word, but it's really, really simple. It just means changing my mind. Quit trying to lead. Follow 
God's direction, following God's lead. It is a turning of my mind and turning of the direction of my life. It is coming to the understanding that there is a God and it is not me. And when you run through everything through that filter, when you understand that, you've begun to enter into the life he has for you. Jesus put it this way. He said it himself. He didn't say, I've come to give them rules. He didn't say, I come to mess with their lives. He said, I have come so that they can have life and to have it in the fullest possible way. Would you bow your heads with me? Thank you for listening to this week's message. We trust that you'll join us again soon for another uplifting message from Northgate Christian Fellowship located in Venetia, California.